used to work in retail. I was on the counter and I have some marks on my forearm. People would comment on them. So people I'd never met in my entire life who are buying something from me. I'm like, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, I just want to buy this. And I give them their change and then they say, oh, what's that on your arm? I would always be like, oh, it was my cat. I mean, it's obviously not, but just that it's so, it's such an uncomfortable experience for somebody with lived experience who's someone who has self-injured to be asked that question because you know that they know what it is. And so it's like, why are you asking? Are you trying to make me uncomfortable? Are you trying to point out that you can see it? Like, why are you doing that? Remember Lexi from episode one? Well, today we have the privilege of hearing her story. I am joined today all the way from Australia by Lexi Staniland. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Lexi Staniland, who is the student representative for IISSS, is a second-year PhD candidate working in the area of self-injury stigma. She has recently published a paper outlining how researchers can better understand self-injury stigma and is currently working on multiple projects looking at how self-injury stigma is experienced and how it is portrayed in the media. Lexi is based in Western Australia and loves cats, red wine, and gardening. Thank you, Lexi, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really excited about our conversation because I know a lot of people listening are particularly interested in hearing from other people with lived experience of self-injury. And I know this is a large part of your story. My hope is for people to hear your story and bring meaning to their own challenges or experiences with self-injury should they be self-injuring as well. I love the work you're doing and I think you're a great example for so many. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm really happy to be able to share my experience. And yeah, I think that having voices from people with lived experience is really important, Um, not just in terms of like feeling seen and that kind of thing, but also kind of giving people sort of some alternative perspectives like, yes, I can have an experience of self-injury and get a PhD and publish things. And I think that that's cool. Like I'm glad to be able to do that basically. (laughs) Yeah, it's a great example for so many people. I would love to unpack your story and just get an understanding of your lived experience, but also kind of bring it all together with, like you mentioned, your research, you're getting your PhD in this. So just to kind of start from the beginning, I guess, just using general terms, what was it that you did that was a form of self-injury? Sure. So I first started to self-injure as a teenager, so around 13, and I was just scratching myself with an implement. And yeah, it was a difficult time in my life. My parents had separated a couple of years before that. We had moved towns, totally new area for people not familiar with WA, like a two hours drive away from kind of where we had grown up so this whole new area my mother had moved us down there to be with her new boyfriend so it was just like a lot of change new school and we didn't have an easy upbringing there wasn't a lot of sort of parental support and I really didn't have that sort of stable adult figure to kind of guide me in terms of how to cope with challenges 
So when challenges did arise, I kind of didn't really know how to deal with it. And I found that self-injury was a way that worked. So I was coping with a lot of things, you know, school bullying, a history of sexual assault, lots of overwhelming emotions, I think, that I just didn't know how to deal with. And so trying to make that emotional pain stop, I was able to, I guess, use physical pain to deal with that and so that was kind of my beginning Um, that's kind of how I first started and that didn't last a long time probably a year so on and off but the reason that I stopped at that stage was just finding I guess a social support network that I felt safe in and could kind of not necessarily I don't think I learned how to regulate my emotions but just that I was feeling less negative emotion to try and regulate I don't know if that makes sense but basically less bad things happening not needing to deal with as many bad things So, yeah, I guess at that stage of my life, really kind of dealing with emotional difficulties and just feeling like I was not good enough, defective, those kinds of of thoughts and feelings. So for me, self-injury at that age was both emotion regulation and uh, self-punishment. But yes, then I kind of stopped for a while and then I actually started to self-injure again at around 19. It's interesting to look back on this because it was another period of transition in my life. I moved from my mother's home to my father's home so I could start uni. And again, kind of thrust into this area of unknown, not feeling connected, not feeling like I belonged anywhere and also not having any strong adult supports to turn to. So unfortunately, both of my parents didn't really have the capacity, the emotional capacity to provide that for me. So yeah, again, new house, new town, new school, not being able to really navigate that very well. And I started a new job, like it was just everything. It was, again, not, not really being able to cope with that very well. And I also started drinking at this stage in my life. So I think that, not that I think that I self-injured because I was drinking, but more so it just kind of added another layer of complexity to my experience. Yeah, it just kind of was this this mess really of depression and, you know, self-injury, but also making bad choices and not really taking care of myself, but not knowing how to, at this stage of my life, self-injury had a sort of different function. Yes, emotion regulation, but I also found the aftercare really important part of the process which I know other people I've heard talk about as well so being able to look after like wounds like just being able to tend to them it was like a really tangible way to care for myself which I know for some people might be really confusing because injuring yourself so that you can look after yourself seems kind of contradictory just for some reason it was just this way I guess it's probably because I just didn't know how to care for myself in any kind of emotional way. So it was just a bit more tangible, I think. To recap so far, the first time you had self-injured was when you were 13 years old, you were scratching yourself, and it sounds like you were uprooted from your home, you moved to a new place, there was bullying, you mentioned sexual assault, and then 
lack of support from parental figures or just adults in, in general. And that lasted for a while, but then you stopped and then you started again when you were 19, again, moving away, going to the university, going to uni. And the first time with the scratching, it was more for regulating your emotions and to punish yourself. And this time it was also to regulate your emotions as a young adult, but to also provide that self-care that we talked about actually with quotes in episode one, our inaugural episode. So that was a unique function for you. And that was cutting. Was that the behavior? Yes. And then if it's okay for me to ask, how old are you now? I am 30 now. Okay. So when you were 13, how long did that last for with the scratching? Yeah, so that was between the ages of 13 and 15. So about a year-ish, but it was kind of on and off. Yeah, it wasn't a really consistent behavior. But when I started again at 19, that went, I was cutting myself for, again, around a year, but a lot more consistently. I was really struggling at that age. Again, it was finding a sense of belonging that helped me to stop. So I don't cut myself anymore, but I do still self-injure in other ways, but not very frequently. So when you were 13 and you started self-injuring through scratching yourself, how did that come up as an idea that might help you cope in that moment? Was it something you had heard about or something that just kind of clicked in your brain as maybe a a way to self-punish and then find relief from your emotions at that point? It's a great question because I actually have no idea. I don't know where I got the idea from. I truly don't. I've thought about this a lot because I wonder if I had read about it somewhere but, you know, I didn't, we didn't have the internet when I was 13. So I thought maybe like, you know, Dolly magazine, if anyone is familiar with the like secret section, you'd have to like tear it open and you'd get to read like Dolly Doctor. I actually just don't, I don't know. I don't know where I got the idea. And when you had done it when you were 19, going to the university, was that a, a natural next step in your mind from scratching to cutting? Or was this something that you had heard about? How did the cutting come about? To be honest, I was in a relationship with somebody who was cutting as well. And I'm reluctant to suggest that I got the idea from them purely because I, having had a previous history of self-injury is what informed my choice to self-injury again, not the fact that I had kind of observed it in somebody else. But I think what kind of really might have happened there for me is that I had learned that self-injury was not okay, quotation marks there, but then being with somebody who did self-injure, it felt okay. That's a bit difficult to kind of unpack, I think. But basically, I think it just gave me the space to use a coping strategy that I knew about. Again, I don't really know where I kind of got the idea, Mm -hmm. but I knew about, like I'd always known about cutting. I think when I was 13, I chose scratching just because it was less scary than when I was 19, you know, a bit older, a bit more not confident, just, I guess, daring, maybe. But that's not really the right word. But anyway, I just felt that that was, I guess, yeah, the next logical step, maybe. Did your parents know about your scratching, your cutting? Yeah, did your parents know? No, they didn't. I don't think, I still think to this day that my mother doesn't know. She might, but we've never talked about it. But when I was a teenager, it was 
it was made quite clear that there wasn't really space for me to talk about my experiences or how I was feeling. So I knew that if my mother was to find out that she would actually just be very angry. And there was an experience that I can't really go into much detail about because it's not my story to tell, but um, there was an experience that I kind of witnessed, I guess you could say, of my mother's reaction to somebody else's self-injury at the same time that I was also engaging in the behavior so I knew that she would not respond well Mm -hmm. so I definitely kept that hidden there was a a time when just staying in in the age bracket of 13 14 ish where I think one of my teachers found out but I think from memory this is because I would write in the backs of my school books so like you have your exercise book and you're supposed to write notes in it in the back side I would write like poetry and I would journal but I would write about all sorts of things and I probably would have written about that Um, and I do remember being kind of called into the office so what had happened is I'd left that exercise book in a classroom someone had found it handed it in the teachers had read what I'd written in the back and I guess wanted to check in to see if I was okay They didn't bring up self-injury specifically, but they asked if I wanted to speak to a counsellor. I was 13 and I said no because I thought I would get in trouble. They were like, well, do you want us to talk to your parents? And I said no. And then they were like, okay. And I was like, I'm fine. I wasn't, but I was a, you know, frightened teenager. And then I never heard anything about it again. So, yeah, I guess there could have been some sort of discovery, understanding support in that stage of my life but it just didn't work out that way and then when I was 19 my dad did find out so he saw the marks on my arms and he commented on it well he said he was like what's what's that on your arm and I think I I was kind of like tried to be like oh you know it's nothing but he he said did you do that to yourself and I said, yeah, I did. And I felt really ashamed in that moment. I felt like not even that I had done something wrong because it was like morally wrong, but that I had hurt him, that my action against myself was inadvertently an action against him. So I felt really, yeah, guilty and ashamed, like I disappointed him in some way, especially because, I don't know, I, I think he saw me, because my parents aren't particularly, I guess, well, like my parents do have some challenges that they face. And so I often felt that I needed to be okay for them. And so to expose myself as maybe not okay, felt like I was letting him down um, because I felt as though I needed to be the strong person and I wasn't. Your story just reminds me of so many stories I've heard where when you were 13 years old or 14 and the teacher found out, the school found out, they wanted to tell your parents and you said no because you thought you would be punished. You had witnessed your mother react negatively in anger towards someone else who had self-injured. So you already had that as an experience, knowing how she would likely respond to you. And so there's a good chance you would have been punished, it sounds like. And then sharing with your dad how disappointed you saw him to be, how would you have liked your father to have responded in that moment? Or is that the correct response for him? 
It's a good question because I don't necessarily think that he was disappointed. I think that was my perception okay. and sort of something that I carried rather than something that he put on me, I guess. Just to, I guess, follow up in terms of how that conversation continued to go because I said I did and, and then Keith was kind of like, oh. And he said something like, well, don't, there's no need to take it out in your body. He was like, what's going on for you is in your mind. Like your pain is in your mind. Your body didn't do anything wrong. So why are you punishing your body? That was kind of the, it wasn't those exact words, but that was the sentiment of what he was saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly not the worst reaction. You know, he wasn't angry. He wasn't even really upset. He was kind of took it quite logically, like, well, that just doesn't make sense because mind, body, like, kind of separated those things. I guess it kind of does make sense for some people to think in that way. And at the time when he said that, it did feel helpful because it gave me something to sort of latch on to, I guess, but only briefly because it didn't help. Like the next time I felt like I needed to self-injure, I wasn't like, no, like it's your body didn't do anything wrong. I was like, well, no, this is actually super useful. So I'm going to do it. But anyway, to answer your question, sorry, I think what... I probably needed at that time was for him to just be like, wow, it sounds like you've got some stuff going on. Are you okay? What do you need? How can I support you? Rather than providing a response that in a way kind of diminished my experience because even though it sounds logical and for a little while it felt like it was a helpful thing to say, it didn't provide me with anything constructive. It didn't give me any additional tools or strategies or resources that I could use next time I was feeling like I needed to self-injure. So I guess what I needed from both of my parents was at either time in my life for them to just kind of take the baton from me and be like, hey, you're struggling And that's okay. And I'm going to help you. I'm going to support you in these struggles rather than anger or rationalization. I think that's really helpful for any parents listening because, of course, teenagers know that their parents aren't going to be okay with this kind of behavior. And so it's simply telling them, stop it. Uh, I guess it could help some individuals, but none of the ones that I've talked to for the most part, you know that your dad is not okay with that, but needing to take the bat out of your hands and be the one to support you rather than you to be the one to support yourself. Because you just said when you were 19, 20, one of the functions that this behavior served was that self-care. Well, you need to care. And what better way than to get that from a family member or loved one? Exactly. Yeah. Maybe if I had had some stronger supports in my life, I wouldn't have needed self-injury to serve that purpose in a roundabout way. At what point did you choose to seek help for yourself? Because it sounds like you were feeling on your own for so long as a teenager. Was there a point where you did choose to seek help? Sort of. There was a few things that kind of happened. When I separated from my partner at the time, that was kind of my lowest ebb, I guess you could say. Yeah, I was not in a good place at all. My auntie took me in and I started living with her for a while and that's where things started to change. So she was able to provide me with that strong support that was like safe but also quite practical and I started to kind of just feel like I could sort my stuff out. And so it's not necessarily that I like intentionally sought 
her support. She kind of just happened because she wasn't really involved much in our lives as children. So it was quite fortunate that I was able to connect with her in a more meaningful way as an adult. So she, I mean, I always credit her with being here still. Like she literally saved my life in more ways than one. So that kind of just provided me with a bit of a, a safety net that I could kind of go from. And I did seek some psychological support over the years, but never specifically for self-injury. I never went to a therapist and was like, hey, I'm self-injuring and I want to stop. You know, that was never why I went. I went once because I just was so depressed. I just like, I didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. But that wasn't particularly useful. Another time I wanted to kind of work through the difficulties I was having with drinking. So over the years, I guess, I just was able to pick up strategies from various places, books, friends who were more, I guess, who had better strategies than I did, things that I did learn from therapists and kind of build up this, yeah, I guess, toolkit of strategies that I could use that over time sort of replaced self-injury. So it wasn't that I kind of was like, I want to stop and I did. Like that wasn't like my, I guess, goal or intention. It just happened because I was able to cope with the things that were leading to my self-injury in the first place if that makes sense. Yes. In our email exchange, you wrote, what was helpful for me was focusing on filling up my toolkit rather than emptying it of the strategies I had at the time, which I think is a default position for many. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think creating your toolkit when you aren't, if you're in a position like I was growing up where you didn't learn any of those strategies for whatever reason, or maybe strategies that you are taught don't work for you and and you are relying on self-injury as a strategy can be really easy to just keep relying on that. I don't think that it's necessarily easy to build a toolkit, especially when you don't know what that toolkit even looks like. Even You might not even know that you can have a toolkit. So yeah, if anyone is listening who is struggling with self-injury and then maybe they want to reduce their self-injury or maybe they don't understand why they can't use other strategies, it's because it's difficult and I guess acknowledging that that is a challenge creating that toolkit and learning what what helps you and what doesn't help you is a process and doesn't necessarily yeah happen overnight and some things work better in some situations and sometimes you might still self-injure in some instances and that's okay as long as you know you have other options I think Well, you had mentioned that you still occasionally will self-injure. Yeah, so I sometimes I'll scratch myself and sometimes I will hit myself. It depends. If I experience just like really overwhelming and uncontrollable frustration, and that usually only occurs when I'm under a lot of stress and pressure, then it might just kind of come out in hitting myself. It's a bit difficult for me to explain because it's quite a specific experience. It's usually because I'm angry at myself for having made a mistake because I've, you know, missed, maybe I've missed a meeting, but then I've also forgotten about some deadline. So it's like this accumulation of things that I did wrong. And then I guess in those instances, it's both an expression of emotion, but also a form of self-punishment, but not super conscious, kind of really just, yeah, 
I guess, happens. And then the other times will be more of a scratching. Um, but this is when I'm trying to cope with basically sensory overload. This is when I can't really cope with lots of inputs in particular situations. And again, this doesn't happen a lot. So one example is during, well, I'm in WA, so we've been very fortunate with the COVID situation. But at some points during last year, when we would try and go down to the shop to you know, get supplies or whatever, it would be really, really busy and chaotic and noisy and I was potentially also in a rush or I had some other thing to be doing. Like, you know, so it was just like a, an accumulation of things. So I already wasn't coping that well to begin with and then being put in a situation where there was lots of sensory overload and then I just couldn't cope. So then my self-injury in the form of scratching just, and it was almost like a grounding experience and enabled me to just focus on one sensation that was able to kind of block out the people yelling and all of the sound and all of the, yeah, those sensory inputs that were occurring at the same time. But if I was at home and I had that same experience, there's other ways that I would be able to deal with that. And I was going to ask about that. You had mentioned this toolkit what might be some things that are in your toolkit that have been helpful for you? Of course, we don't know if they're going to be helpful for everyone, but I'm sure listeners are like, well, what's in that toolkit? And, yeah, and so yeah. what are some things that you have used and found helpful? Because it sounds like you're able to use that at times. And even with your current self-injury as an adult, it's infrequent. It sounds like you've been able to cope differently than in the past using this toolkit. So yeah, what are some of those things in your toolkit? Yeah. Okay. So the toolkit comprises things that I can use in the moment, but also things that are almost preventative. I think that's also an important thing that I was able to develop was more resources that kind of insulated me against being overwhelmed to begin with so that then I wouldn't get to the point where I needed to self-injure because I was able to kind of preempt it and sort of interrupt it before I even got to that. So I know that some of these might sound stupid, but things like literally breathing. I find that just breathing is really useful for me, especially when I'm feeling very overwhelmed. And I've learned how to do that through yoga. And people are probably rolling their eyes, but that's what helps for me. And if you haven't tried it, you just have to. So breathing has been very, very helpful. In therapy, particularly recently, sort of within the past few years, just learning how to sit with difficult emotions and be comfortable being uncomfortable has been, I guess these aren't really tools or strategies. Hmm. I, I think they are. I think that's a skill to be learned yeah. and practiced and a tool to be sharpened that you've been able to help you at times. I guess I'm trying to think about strategies that I could use in a moment of extreme frustration where I may have self-injured previously. But that's really challenging because I guess my tools were, they are now more preventative. And I guess as well, it depends on what your intention is. Like, what are you trying to do? Like, are you trying to reduce cutting yourself? If so, perhaps maybe using a different form of self-injury that's maybe less damaging could be useful. Yes, it doesn't actually deal with the underlying situation but it can be something that you can kind of that is in part of your process of moving out of that behavior that's something that I did what else running 
not in terms of like, oh, you're feeling a difficult emotion, go for a run and that will fix it. Mm -hmm. But more just running just helps to get some of that build up of emotion out so that then it kind of doesn't just add upon itself. Talking, (laughs) these all sound really obvious. Having people that you can say, I feel really terrible and I want to hurt myself. And having that other person be like, heck, that sounds really tough. Do you want to tell me what you're feeling terrible about? And just be able to talk about it openly and honestly has been really helpful. I'm really lucky to have people like that in my life. I know that that's not the case for some people, but talking about it is a really useful strategy. What else? Writing, writing it down. Like journaling Um, or just kind of, yeah. Both. I think sometimes it, Like maybe I'll just type some notes on my phone, like I feel terrible about this thing or, you know, whatever it is that I'm kind of coping with. Yeah. I'm trying to think of practical things, but they're not really coming to mind. These are great practical things, I think. I mean, I really like your comment about preventative strategies because once we start recognizing, hey, I'm starting to feel overwhelmed for me, I think, yeah, running, lifting weights, reading, getting a good night's sleep, all those things that are going to preemptively reduce the stress that would lead to something like in this case self-injury so i think these are excellent i think napping is actually a very good strategy there's been times before in the relatively recent past where i've been in in a lot of distress and i've really wanted like i've there's no way only self-injury was going to alleviate that distress so i just got into bed and kind of wrapped myself up in a blanket and just like i squirmed around a lot because i just there was Sometimes, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced, some some of the listeners will have probably experienced this feeling of just having like ant under your skin and it's just, it's this overwhelming feeling of frustration and anxiety and fear and it's just so many things and you just can't deal with it and the only way to kind of get it out of you sometimes feels like self-injury is the only way. But wrapping myself in a blanket that time, like basically swaddling yourself. And then even if you're just squirming around like a bug, eventually you might fall asleep. (laughs) That helped me. Maybe ludicrous to others, but that is something that I found helpful. There's something magical about naps where they just kind of recalibrate things. You wake up and it's just a different mood, even if it's been 5, 10, 20 minutes. Absolutely. Earlier, you had mentioned having sought therapy. You alluded to some of it not necessarily being all that helpful, but then also that there was some utility in going to therapy. What was it that you found helpful about the therapist or just therapy in general? And what was not so helpful for you? So maybe I'll start with the unhelpful things and then I'll talk about the helpful things. So things that I found unhelpful were over-focus on behaviours rather than the things that were underlying the behaviours. So if I was seeking support for drinking, for example, which for lots of people can often serve a similar function to self-injury, an over-focus on the behaviour rather than what's causing the behaviour wasn't helpful because you take away the drinking or the self-injury, what are you replacing it with? Like, okay, so maybe, you take, maybe I'm going to stop self-injuring, but now I'm going to drink more. I actually need some literal, practical strategies here. Other things that I found unhelpful were, I guess it's dismissal, but probably not as overt as that, but 
because a couple of therapists that I've spoken to in the past, I might talk about my experience and there was limited validation of that and more of a focus on, okay, well, let's just change what you're doing now and then everything will be okay. Whereas maybe I just needed some validation of, yeah, that actually sounds really tough. Because I think validation is so powerful, especially for people who are self-injuring because we carry so much guilt and shame already. We're kind of going around in the world often carrying a secret about this behavior that is a heavy burden and then we also feel bad for being depressed or lonely or miserable or anxious or whatever it is that we're feeling and then if we go and seek support and they're like okay well you need to stop self-injuring you need to exercise more try some yoga like okay cool so the reason I feel bad and keep self-injuring is because I'm just a terrible self-carer and like that's difficult I think because if you're trying to support somebody in the same breath I'm saying give me strategies but don't tell me what to do I guess it's it's a combination of that sounds really really hard and I can totally understand why you would be drinking or self-injuring or whatever it is have you thought about trying this thing and then have a discussion around it I guess hmm yeah, that's actually really helpful and a great reminder even for myself. I often, as a therapist, as a psychologist doing therapy, I have to consciously remind myself, like, be here in the moment in the pain. You know, even though they, that was maybe not a decision that the person wanted to do as far as self-injury or anything behaviorally, recognizing, yeah, you don't sound very happy about yourself with that. And I'm sorry that you're struggling that way or that just sounds horrible. And I have found that that opens the person up to once they feel heard and validated that then they're ready maybe for what I might offer as a strategy next or not necessarily me offering but exploring with them a strategy that would be helpful in that moment and and I have to constantly be conscious of that conscientious of that and intentional yeah totally. I don't get it right every time no well we can't get it right every time can we but sounds like that approach would be really helpful for people yeah I agree and we want to fix things, don't we? When we see people in pain, we want that pain to end for that person. And so I know I do the same thing. Like I have to, you know, step back from when I am automatically trying to fix things for friends where I just need to be like, that sucks. Yeah. And I'm sorry. Sometimes I'll, I'll say it's a little cheesy, but I'll say sometimes listening is the fix when fixing doesn't fix. And so just being able to listen actively, ask questions, validate, because that's what usually people are looking for. And that's what helps them. Absolutely. And just in addition, just to add another thing, what my currently on hold therapy journey has been a lot of validation and kind of talking about my experiences growing up and just hearing a psychologist say that shouldn't have happened to you and that's really hard to cope with is so powerful and has really helped me accept that, yes, I struggle with things, but there's a reason for that and it's not my fault. Kind of that acknowledgement helps to move through it because I think like even though we have this like much, maybe not much better, but you know, there's there's a growing understanding and acknowledgement of mental health difficulties and challenges that people face. But there's also this real focus on fixing that. It's like, oh, you're feeling depressed. Like you have to go to therapy. Like, oh, you're anxious. Like now you, I don't know, you have to take medication, whatever it is. Part of the process for me has been accepting that it's okay to just be depressed and not always be trying to fix that. And I think that's part of that, like sitting with difficult emotions as well, which is not easy. I'm not definitely not suggesting that everyone should now today 
just accept that you're depressed. That's not, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, but just that process for me has been really useful. I mean, I'm still medicated, but, you know, I'm finding it easier and easier to sit with difficult emotions rather than trying to just, like, stop them. Trying to stop them sometimes is what causes the suffering that we perpetually feel and being able to sit with them. And I think you use the word tolerate them. Part of that is also this shared human experience. Yeah, there's ups and downs in life and the downs are just, some people experience really, really bad downs, you know, really hard ones, And but there's still a shared experience with others. But going back to your comment, I wanted to highlight that some of the most helpful things a psychologist could say to you is that shouldn't have happened to you. I see how you feel and why you feel that way. Yes. How have you used your experience in your journey of self-injury, I guess, for the better? Here you are getting your PhD. So can you share with with us a little bit about your journey? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So in my fourth year of psychology degree, we have to do a research project. And that's when I met my supervisors who were working in the area of self-injury. Penny Hasking and Mark Boys, and then later when I moved into my PhD, that's when um, I started working with Stephen Lewis as well. The three of them just incredible. When I first met Penny and Mark is when I realised that this experience that I had of self-injury wasn't just this like weird pathological sort of fringe thing. It was actually a behaviour that lots of people engage in and is a topic that people care about and are interested in and you could do research about it. And that was kind of this real turning point for me because I guess I'd always minimised those experiences for myself and in doing so kind of didn't really accept that part of my life. And so moving into the research space and researching self-injury it was kind of like this dual process right so part of it was like self-acceptance like learning more about the behavior learning more about myself but also I've really found that having lived experience is a real asset to research because I think it helps inform more meaningful research questions that's kind of how I've been able to use my yeah experience of self-injury in a sort of, I guess, productive way or maybe helpful or useful way. As you mentioned, my project is focusing on lived experience and stigma. And so I think being able to bring a lived experience perspective to that is really powerful because there are things that I can consider that maybe someone without ex- lived experience might not. And I think that perspective and that approach is useful, but I think also can lead to a couple of positive outcomes. One being perhaps more meaningful or sort of worthwhile research questions. So actually doing research that matters for the people that you're researching, but also being quite open about my lived experience in a researcher role, I think demonstrates to other people that you can do research in a thing that you experience. And having a lived experience of self-injury doesn't mean that you can't achieve and it doesn't mean that you can't ever think about or research or like embed yourself within that field again. Like I, I know that, I, you know, sometimes people might be like, oh, if I try and if I enter this research area, will I start self-injury again? Or like, will I be able to cope? Yeah, I think I've been able to both bring my lived experience perspective to the research space, but also maybe I'm trying not to like 
oversell myself here, but maybe also provide a bit of an example for other people that's like, you can do it. You're strong. You can achieve anything. Yeah. Episode nine, Dr. Sarah Victor talked about her research and a paper that she published with Stephen Lewis and also with Jennifer Mielenkamp just about psychologists with lived experience of self-injury. And so that it's not as uncommon as we might think. A lot of people are serving great examples. I know you don't want to oversell yourself, but I mean, I appreciate your story so much. And here in my hand, I'm holding your paper. I think it's your first, first author paper, Stigma and Non-Suicidal Self-Injury, Application of a Conceptual framework. And you talk about all these different types of stigma that I imagine comes from some personal experience that a researcher without having self-injured would not have. They would not have that. I'm wondering, can you tell us just a, a little bit about the stigma that maybe you've experienced, how it may have influenced your paper? Totally. Yeah. So for those who haven't read it, which is probably most people. <laughs> the paper is, I guess, a bit of a call to action, but also a framework from which we can, as researchers, sort of jump from in terms of where to focus our attention, what kinds of questions to ask. In that paper, myself and my supervisory team, we talk about the different types of stigma that people who have self-injured can experience. And stigma itself, no matter what type of stigma it is, can be experienced roughly in four ways. So there's kind of like the public perception that people have. So this is like attitudes and beliefs that you might see presented in the media, for example. And then everyone has their own personal opinion or attitude and belief. And then you have, if you have lived experience of, let's stick with self-injury as the example, if you have lived experience of self-injury, then you may have some form of stigma towards yourself. And that's usually based off of public stigma and those public perceptions. And then we can also expect stigma. So even without ever having experienced it, we might anticipate that that will occur and then we have our enacted or actual experiences of stigma and self-injury stigma is unique in that it's this sort of combination of mental illness stigma plus the addition of physical components so because stereotypically self-injury results in scarring or some form of mark that's noticeable. People might see that and be able to make lots of assumptions about a person based on a scar acting as somewhat of a signifier of mental illness. And so they're kind of really, well, I, I think, I don't know yet, I, I'm still really trying to unpack these things, but they're quite tied together, but distinct as well in terms of like self-injury and mental illness stigma and so for myself I think it's quite difficult for people sometimes to recognize what a stigmatizing experience is because we want to protect ourselves but we also try and look for the best in other people so we might downplay other people's actions and kind of explain them away just some examples of things that have occurred that you could classify as stigmatizing I used to work in retail. I was on the counter. So I would, you know, put people's things through the till and I have some marks on my forearm. And at that time, they were quite visible because that was when I was in my early 20s. People would comment on them. So people I'd never met in my entire life who were buying something from me. I'm like, hey, how are you doing? And they're like, I just want to buy this. And I give them their change. And then they say, oh, what's that on your arm? That might not sound like necessarily a stigmatizing reaction or behavior, but it kind of is because it demonstrates a few things like 
A, that people feel that they can comment on the marks that a person has, which isn't isolated to self-injury, of course, but then the follow-on assumptions that people might make about that. Often because self-injury, particularly from cutting the scars and the marks, are usually recognisable as self-injury. And so that combination of, oh, what's on your arm? And then trying to have to, like, as a 20-year-old, just trying to do their job, getting paid minimum wage, having to try and come up with some explanation that would satisfy the person. But also, you don't want to be, like, telling your life story to this stranger. And so I would just, I would always be like, oh, it was my cat. Like, you, I would always just be like, yeah, it was my cat. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's obviously not. The person wouldn't be asking if they genuinely thought that that's what it was but just that it's so it's such an uncomfortable experience for somebody with lived experience who's someone who has self-injured to be asked that question because you know that they know what it is and so it's like why are you asking are you trying to make me uncomfortable Hmm. are you trying to point out that you can see it like why are you doing that I mean that happened a lot not a lot but more often when I was younger when my scarring was more observable but I think for me and I think that this from some of the interviews that I've done throughout my PhD a lot of the stigma that we kind of carry around as people who have self-injured is anticipated Mm. I think we pick up all of these messages whether they were said directly to us or we've overheard them or we've we've seen them in in the media like news media or movies or whatever we pick up these messages and it gives us this expectation of how self-injury will be responded to and so I expect to be stigmatized for self-injury and maybe not overtly maybe I don't expect somebody to directly tell me that I'm crazy but I expect they might think that I am unstable or that I can't be relied upon that I might fly off the handle for example because like obviously I can't control my own emotions and so I I do worry about those types of perceptions and that certainly has been a big part of my decision which wasn't a quick decision to be open as a researcher, well, a PhD candidate, not a researcher yet, with lived experience. And when I was first, you know, putting together my proposal for my PhD, I chose not to disclose. Even though there was part of me that really wanted to, I was quite concerned with the possible response of other academics who might be like, well, how can you be impartial or objective as a researcher in this space if you have lived experience? How are you going to cope emotionally having to hear about and read about and listen to people's stories about self-injury? Which are all valid questions, but the automatic assumption that I can't cope rather than, well, let's give this person the benefit of the doubt and let's go to a default of giving people autonomy rather than doubting them. I think that's informed by stigma. Yeah, all four of those types of stigma that you just mentioned seem to interplay quite a bit and interconnect the public stigma leading to enacted stigma, which leads to self-stigma and then the anticipation, anticipated stigma of it reoccurring. I think these are incredible examples that you just shared that make it really real. I'm very grateful for you being open about your experience, knowing that it's such a personal experience, and yet here we are making it so public on a podcast. I know that's no (laughs) small ask, and so I'm very grateful for that. Bringing everything together, 
Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents, particularly of young people or adults who self-injure? Great question. Big question. Difficult question to answer. My first, like my gut reaction is don't freak out, even though I know that that's really hard. But I think that your response is really, really important and can genuinely be life-changing. So it's absolutely normal and fine to be shocked or afraid or guilty or angry any of those all of those feelings are normal normal response your child is clearly in some form of distress and has hurt themselves it would be concerning if you weren't feeling those things however in the moment that's your stuff and so what your child needs is your support they need you to be that strong person who's like okay this is a challenge things seem to be difficult for you right now let's work out how we can move forward maybe not even that maybe they just need a hug you know like just responding to them as an individual rather than responding to them out of your reaction or your expectation of what their self-injury means and I think this is a theme that just keeps coming up for me is seeking to understand and I think that goes for clinicians, parents, teachers, researchers, everybody just kind of not assuming anything about that person's experience. If you discover that your child has been self-injuring, a really gentle and compassionate, but also, I want to say strong, but I don't mean strong as in like a strong response. I mean, just like you being like stable and reliable and just like you've got yourself under control. Anchored. Yes, anchored, exactly, is really important. And I think as well, trusting them, I think is important. You might have a really strong desire to like search the entire house for every possible sharp implement and take their door off of their bedroom and check their body for injuries, that's going to create a divide between you where they don't trust you because you don't trust them. And I think trying to take more of an approach of there is a challenge that my child is facing at the moment and together me and my child are going to deal with this challenge rather than focusing too much on the self-injury itself or the fact that they've been hiding it from you like that's not the issue why are they self-injuring and how do we improve whatever that that is that's my advice (laughs) that's great advice that's great advice and you threw in a little bit for professionals too so is there anything else based on our conversation today that you would recommend to professionals whether they're clinicians therapists researchers yeah i think Again, that seeking to understand, I think, really avoiding making assumptions. There's a lot of assumptions about self-injury that we all fall victim to, like that everyone self-injures for emotion regulation. Like, yes, that is a pretty common reason, but there are other reasons. And people have lots of different reasons in different circumstances. Yeah, really getting to understand what's going on as a clinician particularly or some other health professional providing a service like a nurse or a psychiatrist or a GP, like really trying to understand what's going on for that person rather than trying to rely too much on that. Established knowledge. I don't know how prevalent this really is, but I hear this a lot from people with lived experience that when they've disclosed self-injury, they kind of get automatically put into the trauma slash 
personality disorder basket. I know of several people who've been diagnosed with a personality disorder literally based on the presence of self-injury. Yeah. Yeah. Frustrating. Yeah. I'm shaking my head over here and yeah, you can. (laughs) (laughs) I can see. Yeah. I I see that too. And it's, there are nine symptoms. That's just one of them. You need five or more. You don't make a diagnosis based on one. Yeah. Absolutely. And I don't, I'm not, I don't even think they're making the diagnosis based on that. It's just that I think that knowledge, like, oh, self-injury, this means all of these other things. And then maybe that's, you know, attention bias. I'm like, okay, great. So I can now see all these other aspects of BPD that might not actually be that relevant, for example. So, yeah, I guess for clinicians and other health professionals, is yeah, really just seeking to understand And being patient and compassionate, I think, is really, really important because regardless of whether or not the person wants to stop self-injuring or reduce self-injury or just deal with whatever is causing them to self-injure, in all likelihood, they will do it again. I just think that getting attached to the concept of cessation is not helpful and in some ways could be quite damaging. So kind of working with the client, patient to just really, what do you want and how can we work together to work towards that goal, I guess. Yeah, that is a great recommendation. And and finally, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to other people with lived experience of self-injury, particularly other adults who may still be engaging in self-injury? Yeah. Okay. Another big question. Another tough one. There's so many things that I would love to say. I don't know if I'm going to be able to cover it all very articulately. Number one is try to be compassionate with yourself because you are doing this or you have done this for a reason. You're doing or have done what you needed to do to get through the moment that you're in. And then you did, and now you're here. And so I think whatever it is that you are kind of wanting to focus on, whether that's reducing self-injury or or never self-injuring again, or, you know, whatever that goal is for yourself, I think bring the compassion for yourself first. I think that's the first step, being gentle and compassionate and working on self-acceptance. I think that has been a really, really important thing for me. And trying, trying to shift some of those messages that we receive throughout our lives that you know self-injury is only a a behavior for teenagers and you should have grown out of that and you know why can't you control yourself and why can't you handle your own emotions part of that shifting of those messages is just yeah really trying to accept that some of us feel more than others some of us don't have strategies that other people have and we're just doing our best I always try and remind myself that guilt is just not a helpful emotion and we kind of just feel it and then it makes us feel awful and then we get in this cycle of like I feel bad so I self-injure now I feel guilty which makes me feel worse and so trying to just take the guilt part out of it you're already dealing with enough just take that part out if you can and also knowing that there is support like it, it is out there and is available and there are other adults who self-injure and there are other adults who have maybe self-injured throughout their adulthood or have self-injured on and off or started self-injuring in their adulthood I think having more open dialogue about adults who self-injure is really important because I think a lot of people think that they're the only 40 year old who still self-injures but that's yeah, it's not the case. It's just that people don't really talk about it. And so, yeah, I guess I guess hopefully talking on the podcast as an adult kind of starts to bring that to light a bit, hopefully. 
I could probably go on for a little bit longer, but I think I'm, I've made my point, you know, just start with working on some compassion and, and acceptance as a starting point. Those are some excellent points. Just a, a wonderful way for us to end. Thank you for, again, sharing something so personal in your life. And I can't wait to be able to soon call you Dr. Staniland and to see where you go and how far you advance this field and for me to learn from you in your research and your continued journey. Thank you so much, Lexi, for sharing your story with us. And I hope it's just a positive message for so many listening. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute honor and a privilege. And yeah, it's just really humbling. And yeah, just it's it feels really good to be able to talk about self-injury in a way that you do on this podcast where we take that non-judgmental approach. And it's been great to be part of that. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.